Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. When It Mattered is a podcast exploring how leaders are forged from critical moments and how they deal with and learn from adversity. My guest today is the legendary William Murray. He's a retired senior operations officer who spent nearly 38 years at the Central Intelligence Agency. During his tenure, Murray was posted to some of the most dangerous CIA stations in the world, often during war and civil unrest, including Beirut, Tehran, Pakistan, Syria, and the Balkans. I got a reputation for being what we call the gunfighter, okay, or some of us call the gunfighter, a guy who was sent into difficult conditions when there was some kind of a mess to be cleaned up. So I don't know how I got that reputation, but I got that reputation. So I, they kept sending me to places like that. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Murray also held senior management roles in Washington, D.C., and was seconded in the U.S. Senate to help create the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, which resulted in the largest change in U.S. government structures since the end of World War II. Murray has received numerous awards, including the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. He currently is founder of the Alfom Group, a business intelligence and risk management consulting firm. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chitra. How are you this afternoon? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. You come from a humble working class Irish Catholic family in Boston. In some ways, you were an unlikely candidate for the CIA. That's true. At the time I joined, virtually everybody who had come in before me and the people who were still coming in were all Ivy League, sort of East Coast, um, big families, long established families, etc. So I was a I was a shot in the dark, <laughs> and I uh, wasn't sure how it was going to work out. What was your background? I, I came from a, from a, my my father worked as a design. My my father was in the Navy during World War II, and then used the GI Bill after the war. Uh, got an education as a design draftsman. Worked on a lot of really interesting large engineering projects, like the Polaris submarine, and. Um, the B-58 Hustler and a whole host of missile systems for Raytheon and Honeywell and various other companies around around the Boston area. And I was always fascinated with what he did, the technology, et cetera. Uh, but he had a very large family. There were eight of us. I was the oldest. And uh, so trying to, trying to feed a family like that and house us and et cetera, he wound up working a lot of times two jobs. So... It was, it, it was not particularly a struggle for us to exist. We weren't poor. We never thought of ourselves as poor. It's just, you know, it was, it was a struggle. Uh, I was very fortunate because uh, when, I, when I started high school, my mother insisted that I compete for entrance to a regional Catholic high school that was just opening in the, in the southeastern Massachusetts area. And I didn't think I'd ever pass the test. Well, I did. And I got in and I was in the first graduating class. And then while I was in high school, I did a lot of oratory. I enjoyed that. So I did it. And I wound up in my almost the last few months of my senior year of high school, winning the Massachusetts high school speech contest, which gave me a four year, a four year free college education as a result of it. Um, so I was fortunate. I got into college, and then I, I was 
I was always interested in history, and so I decided I was going to study history and law as subjects. How did you get uh, end up in the government? Well, it's it, it, it's kind of a complex story, but toward, I was in the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps Reserve. Every, every, you have to understand, everybody in my generation, or most people in my generation, the stories in the movies about the 60s, they sort of leave out the fact that many of us were inspired by Kennedy and the whole change in atmosphere in the United States during the Kennedy administration. And we were struck by things like Kennedy's uh, inaugural address, ask not what you can do, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Um, and people went out and joined the Peace Corps. They signed up for the military. They did all kinds of things that would probably seem a little strange to today's generation. But for us, they were important. So I was in the Marine Corps Reserve. And then I thought I was going to go to law school. And in my senior year, I started looking around at alternatives, but I wanted to go into the government in some form. And I didn't want to stay in the military as a career. I wanted to do my duty and my obligation, but I, I wanted some other form of career. So I went to the guidance counselor who had just come to my university and he was a retired FBI special agent. And I went to talk to him about the FBI because I thought, that might be a logical choice, go to law school, then join the FBI. In those days, the FBI only took lawyers, CPAs, or people with significant uh, law enforcement experience. And as soon as I sat down with him, he talked me out of joining the FBI. He said I'd be bored out of my mind. He said he knew enough about me. He'd seen enough of me in the, around the campus that he knew that I just wouldn't accept the incredible uh, stifling atmosphere of the FBI, and he encouraged me to go talk to the CIA. Now, when he talked about the stifling nature of the FBI, this was around the time of Hoover. Yeah, Hoover was still the director, and it was a, it was an incredibly um, different organization from what it is today. I mean, literally everybody bought their suits at the same tailor, okay, because Mr. Hoover had to approve of every single special agent after they graduated from Quantico, they had to go in and shake his hand. He would stand on a little box and they were instructed not to look down because he was a short guy and he had to look at him directly in the eye. And so everybody bought their suits. They were all exactly the same. He, 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 he prescribed what they had to wear, white shirts, conservative tie, dark tie, a dark suit, etc. Um, it was just an incredible martinet. Now, I just want to go back to the Kennedy uh, uh, anecdote you talked about, because you actually indirectly crossed paths with the Kennedys and yeah, you actually I did. played I a did. role in, the, in uh, Ted Kennedy's election. Yeah, I did. Ted Kennedy was appointed to the Senate when Robert Kennedy was made attorney general. But then a couple of years later, or a year later, I guess, 63, he had to run for the Senate on his own name. And he was in an automobile accident and he broke his back. He was in traction in the hospital. So he couldn't, under Massachusetts law, present his own paper, his own nomination papers. So there was a provision under the law that if he could get so many thousand signatures, then those would the signatures would be accepted in lieu of a personal presentation. So I was one of three guys who organized a drive to get the signatures, and we got them in about two or three days. And by the way, the Kennedy family gave us a great party in downtown Boston. We took over a hotel for an evening. And they brought in the Kingston Trio, and they had an MC from Hollywood. I mean, it was just it was just an incredible evening, a lot of fun. But anyway, we got enough signatures, got him on the ballot, and then he was elected to the Senate. 
I didn't have anything to do with him politically after that, but I didn't tell you the other story about Ted Kennedy picking me up off the sidewalk. (laughs) You didn't. No, I was, I broke my, I I didn't, I didn't break it. I fractured something in my ankle while I was in college and I was on crutches for a while. So I was at Suffolk, which is on top of Beacon Hill. It's right behind the state, state department, state house. Okay. So I'm going down, I think Joy Street. Uh, which is a fairly steep street down Beacon Hill toward uh, Beacon Street and the Boston Common, and it's icy and everything else, and I'm on crutches, and bam, I go down, slip on the ice, fall down, and there's a guy who's coming along behind me. I didn't really see him, and he's trying to bend over to help pick me up. It was Ted Kennedy, (laughs) and he was in the brace from the hospital, and he couldn't bend down. Between me on the ground with the crutches and him trying to bend down. <laughs> yeah, it was Ted Kennedy. It's <laughs> a great story. <laughs> I forgot. I could just, you could picture the scene in a movie or something like a comedy, you know, because the poor guy couldn't bend with that brace on. <laughs> and I couldn't get up because every time I tried to get my foot you know, solidly planted somewhere, it would just slip on the ice. So I finally had to sort of move over to an area where there was less ice or something, and then I could prop myself up on the crutches. This was after the petition drive. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was out of the hospital by then, but he was in a he was in a brace for a long time. So you ended up in the CIA. What was it like when you walked into the building? Well, I felt like a kid in a candy store. First of all, I felt like I didn't really belong there. Um, everybody that I met seemed to be better educated, better traveled, better understanding of the world than me. Uh, I'd sit in the cafeteria and listen to people around me speaking in half a dozen languages. We had a huge number of Greek speakers in those days. We had a lot of people from Eastern Europe, obviously, Albanians, uh, various Germans, Russians, etc. So you'd hear all of these languages being spoken around you. Uh, Talk about diversity. It was an incredibly diverse environment. And you, you got to meet incredibly interesting people, uh, people whose backstories you wouldn't believe. Uh, one of the guys I got to know was one of the two Americans who was allowed into the funeral, when, into the actual chapel when Charles de Gaulle was buried because he was a member of the Order de la Liberation. He and Omar Bradley were the only Americans allowed into the chapel because he'd been a, a lieutenant in the Senegalese rifles before the war, and he had fought against the Germans, and he had led all of these African troops, and many of his sergeants were now the heads of state of various African countries, and he, he'd been shot in the jaw with a German machine gun, attacking a German machine gun nest in Syria, and uh, somewhere it's in that area, and so he talked kind of funny, he talked like Popeye, but, but he was a great guy, and he knew everybody, okay? I mean, there was just all kinds of characters around like that that, uh, that I, I just lapped up, uh, just soaked up whatever information I could from them and started to learn. And, and some, it, of the peop- some of the recruits who were with you didn't even bother to cash their paychecks. Yeah, when, when I EOD, they actually made an announcement that if you weren't going to cash your paycheck, please don't just put it in a drawer somewhere, return it to the treasury so they can take it off the books. We had a fairly large number of people who came from very wealthy, old, established American families 
who we call them the dollar a year men. They didn't cash their paychecks. They, they didn't really care about the money. And you also, they weren't just rich, but you also were rubbing shoulders with some of the people who were fairly famous. Yeah, one, one of my first division, one of the first division chiefs that I worked for, chief of African division in those years, was Archie Roosevelt, who was the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He looked a little bit like Teddy, too. He was a, a wonderful man, spoke half a dozen languages, including Arabic, Greek, ancient Greek, and modern Greek. Uh, and just uh, and his brother was Jonathan Roosevelt, or Kim Roosevelt, excuse me, um, who was the guy who worked on, he was in charge of Operation Ajax, which overthrew Mossadegh in Iran. Um, he and his son both worked there. Uh, so it was a whole, and there were a whole group of guys like that. And just one guy that I met who had, his father had worked with Herbert Hoover in the Congo back in the, back in the twenties and thirties and as a mining engineer. And he had an incredible background. It just, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience. And, in addition to the people, there were the resources, the historical intelligence collection and the library, the library itself, which is one of the best, probably, libraries in the world, the map collection. We had some of the best cartographers in the world. Uh, we won competitions every year all over the world for our cartography. So it was, a, it was an incredible experience working there. So you were like a kid in a candy store. Did you yeah. ever get to... Tell your dad where you were and, and the thrill of doing what you were doing? No. Most of my career, I didn't tell anybody where I was working. Um, I mean, my, my wife knew, obviously. My children didn't. Our children didn't until they were just about teenagers. Um, and uh, and, I, and my, I think my father probably figured it out fairly early because he's a pretty smart guy. But I didn't tell them until considerably later. Uh, uh, matter of fact, the first time I ever admitted it to them was when I invited them to a to a to a uh, um, award ceremony at headquarters when I got promoted to the senior executive service. So that was the first time I actually admitted to my parents where I worked. <laughs> and and you worked your way to the top. I mean, you were posted to a series of tours overseas in some key locations: Africa, Europe, eventually the Middle East, where you spent the bulk of your career, and then the Balkans during the last fifteen. And you wound up getting posted to stations that were, were pretty dangerous. Give us some examples of those. Yeah, well, I, I could never figure out if they were just trying to get rid of me and hoping I wouldn't come back or if, or if you know, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't fill the right niches or something. And I kept getting, I got a reputation for being what we called a gunfighter, okay, or some of us called a gunfighter, a guy who was sent into difficult conditions when there was some kind of a mess to be cleaned up. So... I don't know how I got that reputation, but I got that reputation. So I, they kept sending me to places like that. The only one I ever asked to go to really was Beirut because I felt an obligation to go there. Uh, I knew Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley had been kidnapped by Hezbollah, well, the, by kid, something called Islamic Jihad, which was a branch of Hezbollah. And he'd been tortured and killed and um and, and I knew Bill. Bill came from Massachusetts, like I did. Uh, and I just felt, you know, I should go there and try to do something. We didn't know where his body was. We got his body back later. Um, and, and, and we had 17 Americans as hostages at that time, or 17 foreign hostages. They weren't all American. Um, most of them were American, though. And so, I, you know, I felt an obligation. I felt like I had a really good background early in my career, 
as somebody who could recruit sources of information, what we call agents, by the way, we don't call CIA people agents, they're not agents, they're intelligence officers, but the people we recruit are the agents. And I had a good track record early in my career for my ability to recruit, including Soviet recruitments, what we call hard target recruitments, Soviets, Eastern Europeans, et cetera. So I was pretty well established by that time. And I did go to Beirut as the first chief of station after, after Bill Buckley's death was announced. And Tehran was another example. Tehran was, uh, was, quiet, was quieter when I was there than it was later. It was, I was there before the overthrow of the Shah. But even while I was there, there was an organization called the Mujahideen at Galk, uh, which was killing Americans. They killed seven Americans while I was there. And I was sent there because they had tried to assassinate my predecessor and they actually made a mistake and they shot the guy that he worked with who had set him up. Um, but there was a fluke and my predecessor hadn't gone to work that day. And the the, the terrorists, the, the people who did the killing, the assassins, mistook the man in the car for my predecessor and they shot him in the back of the head. And he was actually the guy who had set my predecessor up. So I went there uh, to replace him. Uh, different, slightly different uh, working arrangement, but that's what I did. And at the um, time, the mujahideen e were was considered our enemies. Oh, yeah, they were a terrorist organization. Congress has now decided, State Department has now decided that they're not a terrorist organization, but that's largely because the luminaries in our, in our Congress have forgotten how many Americans they killed over the years. They're still a terrorist organization. Were you ever afraid of being in these... Let, let me explain something about Tehran. I went there with my family. So, you know, I don't want you to think I put my family into harm's way. I didn't. Uh, at that time, there were actually some rules that people were following. And the terrorists in Iran would not try to kill you if you were with your family and they wouldn't target your families and they wouldn't target like your car. If you had your family in the car, they tried to get you alone. Um, so I never real my family was never really in danger there. Strangely, as strange as it sounds today, the same rules don't apply. The, you know, the terrorist movement today, they'll kill as many people as they can and they don't care about, they don't have any rules at all. Were you ever worried about being in these crazy dangerous places? Uh, well, you can't say you're not worried. I mean, Beirut was the middle of a civil war. I mean, there's no point in time while I was in Beirut for a little over two years where the area around you was silent. There was always shelling, machine gun fire, um, 20 millimeter and 40 millimeter cannon fire, uh, fire from one side of Beirut to the other. The, Beirut was a divided city with the, the Shia on, and on the, on the southern, southern, southern suburbs and the, and the Christians on the east in various enclaves. And so you can't ignore the danger. Um, but what you have to do is you have to manage risk. You have to get into an attitude where you have to accept that there is risk. There's always going to be risk and you have to figure out a way to manage it for yourself and for others. So you're armed, of course, um, but that only, you know, that's just, that just protects you if somebody comes at you directly. Um, but, you know, and then you just hope you don't get a stray round, okay? Or that you don't get, you know, get a mortar shell landing on your head. <laughs> Sounds strange, but it's a way to live, believe it. So, Actually, it leads to some strange 
physical uh, manifestations. It's it, you wind up with what I used to call the pilot light always burning. It's basically adrenaline, uh, and you feel it when you leave a place like that. Um, I, I remember once coming back to Dulles. I came straight back from. Beirut to Washington, and I got in the car. My wife and kids picked me up at the airport. I got in the car, and before I knew it, Penny said, my wife, one wonderful person, said, Bill, you're doing over 100 miles an hour. I was doing 100 leaving the airport, okay, because that's the way I was used to driving in Beirut, okay, weaving and everything else. I said, Jesus. So after that, when I came home, I used to stop in Germany for a couple of days and just decelerate a little bit. <laughs> Just try to calm down a little bit. So in all of these assignments, you were taking a lot of risks, as were your confidential informants, the agents you were recruiting, and you were reporting back to headquarters on all of these events and developments that you were seeing on the ground. Do you feel like those reports were acted on? No. Washington Washington hears what Washington wants to hear. Washington, I used to say, the, the only thing that gets to the president's attention is on what's on the front page of the Washington Post and the New York Times. And what and the politicians, that's what they have to deal with, because that's what the newsmen are going to ask them about and et cetera. We're, we're, we're now in the fortunate era when the White House is no, no longer going to take, according to what I read two days ago, the White House is no longer going to take the New York Times or the Washington Post. So I guess that they won't, we won't have to worry about that anymore. But it's just, it's just a reflection on our political system that so much is driven by what the newspapers think is important. And when you're out gathering intelligence and working on things and you see something, particularly a long-range trend coming along, if you try to get through to Washington, they don't pay any attention. Uh, I tried very hard both in 1988 in Beirut and 1991 in uh, Islamabad to warn about the dangers of Hezbollah in Beirut, which I saw as an increasingly worldwide ranging organization that we were going to have to deal with at some point in time. And I got nowhere. Nobody paid any attention. And then I tried again in 91. And when I was in Islamabad, I was chief in Islamabad to try to warn of the dangers of walking away from the Afghans. We had a huge army that we had been supporting for 10 years. Not only were we supporting them, we were supporting their families. We were educating their children. We we supplied maternal and healthcare clinics and hospitals. We provided facilities for the wounded, et cetera. We basically did everything uh, because the do-gooder agencies, the NGOs that, that were there, there were over 400 of them, uh, decided they weren't going to help the families of fighters. So I looked at this and I said, you know, we were going to walk away from them. Basically, State Department had decided we were going to have something called negative symmetry where we and the Soviets would both stop supporting our various sides in the war. Soviets had already left Afghanistan. And, you know, I knew very well, the intelligence was very clear. The Soviets weren't going to stop supplying Najibullah and the Afghan regime that they had put in place. And the Moors were going to keep fighting them. So the only people that weren't going to get any assistance were going to be our side. And that's exactly what happened. We cut off all aid to our side, to the Mujahideen, and the Soviets kept supplying the Najibullah regime. Um, and it was, it was viewed as a betrayal by the Afghans. And, you know, it, I mean, it's the incredible part about it is like families with children in our schools, the schools we were funding, 
uh, suddenly then had to find a place for those kids to go to school. So where did they go but the madrasas? And what did they learn at the madrasas? Hate America. Uh, and that's what we're dealing with today. The, the Persian for a student is Talib. And you know, what we're dealing with today is Taliban, the students. Basically, that's what they are. They are the, the younger generation who came up during that time period. And I wrote memos back to Washington, and we tried to do things. But George H.W. Bush was then the president, and he didn't care about it. I came back to Washington in September of 91. I'd only been in Afghanistan a couple of months, or in Pakistan a couple of months then. And I was part of a group that was going to meet with the president to talk about the results of the, the, of the Gulf War, the 1990-91 Gulf War. And I intended to talk to him about Afghanistan. And I was warned beforehand, do not mention Afghanistan to the president. He doesn't want to hear about it, period. You will not discuss it. Well, okay. So I didn't discuss it. Uh, I just, you know, you just, that's Washington. Uh, they, I'll tell you an, an interesting story. I came back at one point in time and met with the then acting director, uh, Bob Gates, and who I admire very much, by the way. And Gates said, I started to talk to him and he said, who is the guy with the red beard, the Afghan with the red beard that visited Bush when Bush was vice president? And I said, how the hell do I know? Don't they keep records at the White House of who they have over there as visitors? He said, don't be, don't be a smart guy. They want to know who the guy with the red beard is. And he said he was an older Afghan, but he had a bright red beard. And I said, that's because they put henna in their beards when they take a young wife or when they do the Hajj to Mecca or they celebrate some event. doesn't mean his beard was really red. It was henna. I said, I have no idea who it was. Well, give me a name. And I said... Was probably Kalis, one of the one of the Abu Rasul Kalis, one of the seven leaders. Oh, okay, that's great. You know, that was they didn't want to hear what I had to say. They just had to fill this request from the White House to figure out who the guy in the red beard was. You probably weren't the only CIA operations officer who had that experience no. that Washington wasn't giving heed to the information you were, you were sending. Well, we're, we're not seers, okay? It's not as though any of us regard ourselves as geniuses or seers. Uh, but yeah, it was a common frustration that you were reporting on things that you thought might be might be of of real significance, particularly those things that weren't of current interest that you thought people ought to look at. And what we found is you just couldn't get an audience. Uh, but one thing Congress loves to do what they call fencing of the budget. In other words, they will give you money for counterintelligence because Congress thinks counterintelligence is important, or they'll give you money for counterterrorism because they think that's important. And they won't give you money for other things. So they give you no scope to report on issues that you think are important because they want the money spent a certain way. And so what you wind up with is everything you wind up doing gets put into the bucket of counterintelligence <laughs> or whatever the, whatever the fad of the moment is. And they just, our system just doesn't really give flexibility and credit to the people who actually do the work to do the work the way they know it needs to be done and do it well. They're constantly trying to drive it all from Washington. Now, you served in Syria during the Gulf War, too. What was your objective at the time you were assigned there? Well, the Syrians had joined us in the coalition, and then I went there to try to make sure that they stayed on our side <laughs> and, and try to get 
try to get them to cooperate with us on certain issues. Like one of the issues that we were concerned about, frankly, was if a pilot got into trouble in the western part of Iraq uh, and had to bail out, we wanted them to be bail, be able to bail out inside Syria. So the, literally the first night I was in Syria, and I got to Syria the day the shelling started, which was an interesting story because I had to bribe my way onto the plane. I had to pay a thousand bucks to the Syrian air guy just to get on the flight. And then when I got on the flight, there was only half a seatbelt. I thought, here I am. You know, you can see the rivets in this plane sort of bouncing up and down as you're flying. And here I am with half a seatbelt. And I said, and I actually paid a bribe to get onto a flight where I'm not even sure the plane's going to make it <laughs> to get to into a war. <laughs> Uh, with a bunch of guys who don't trust me, and I don't know if I trust them. <laughs> but anyway, it all worked out, and I did get that night. I landed in Syria and started the meetings that night. And at three o'clock in the morning, the next morning, we made an agreement with the Syrians that they would—they didn't have electricity along the border with Iraq. But they had these border posts, so what we got, got agreed that they would do is they put up these big outside lanterns outside the border posts, and then they flared some gas fields up in the northern part of Syria. They had some small gas fields up there, and they flared those fields so that the pilots had a beacon. And sure enough, we had we had uh, people who had to, we never had an airplane go cross into Syria and ditch into Syria. The Syrians wanted to make sure that if a plane came in they ditched within five miles of the border because they had given anti-aircraft materials and, and, and weapons to all of the tribes along the border. It's all Bedouin out there. There's no, there's no cities or villages. Uh, and they were afraid that these guys would shoot at any airplane that came, came over. So, but we, but we did have within two or three days, uh, a British group, uh, come through, uh, through, through the border, um, they were they were stuck in they were on a special operation in Syria and they were stuck in Iraq and they were stuck and they came across the Syrian border and we repatriated the one guy who lived out of that group. Uh, as you know, with what's happening in Syria today, with President Trump confronting massive criticism, even from many in his own party for abandoning the Kurds, our allies and withdrawing U.S. troops. Uh, do you see the parallels that you saw in Beirut and Afghanistan here in Syria? Yeah, but in the Syrian case, it's, you know, Trump was faced with trying to deal with a thousand Americans who were there in Syria fighting. And the real, the real tragedy of Syria and, and the American position in the Middle East was when Obama failed to do anything after the Syrians used chemical weapons. He set that out as a red line. He was very for, forceful in what he said we would do if they used chemical weapons. And then they did it and we didn't do anything. And that, to me, that was the end of our influence in the Middle East. Once you, once your bluff is called and you fail to perform in the Middle East, then you're just, you know, you, we lost our moral influence, basically. Uh, we had already lost our influence on Israel-Palestine, uh, and, and Obama just gave away whatever was left. So, uh, yeah, I see incredible parallels in Syria. But the parallel I see is in the language that I hear in Washington, oh, it's 7,000 miles away. What do we care? Doesn't impact on us. Yeah, it does. I mean, we've got hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people from that part of the world who live in the United States, who have families in those countries. Uh, we have incredible security interests. We have incredible 
energy interests in that part of the world. We can't just walk away from the Middle East, whether we would like to or not. We can't do it. But the chemical weapons issue has to also have also had to do with uh, uh, our our position on the use of chemical weapons. Yeah, I mean, the first treaty on on uh, banning the use of chemical weapons was actually signed in 1889, well before the First World War. Now, during the First World War, every side used chemical weapons, including us. But it had been a tenet of American foreign policy since the early 20th century, banning the use of chemical weapons. And we had worked very hard to try to, to try to enforce that treaty around the world. And we, we in the agency did a lot of collecting on who was, who was experimenting with chemical weapons around the world, including, I remember collecting intelligence from Lebanon while I was in Lebanon recruiting people and collecting intelligence on the Syrian experimentation with chemical weapons at that time. Uh, so, it, you know, it was something I collected on all my life. Uh, and to see us just walk away and let the Syrians get away with doing it uh, was just, uh, it was a tragedy. So looking at Syria today, what would you say are the true consequences in terms of our own credibility in the Mideast and as well as the balance of power? We have no credibility. I mean, <laughs> One of the one of the tenets of Russian foreign policy since the time of Peter the Great has been warm water ports and a presence on the Mediterranean, breaking out of the Black Sea and a presence on the Mediterranean. And everybody around Russia has been smart enough to make make sure that didn't happen um, because they're an aggressive people. Uh, and now we have not only a Russian military air force. Base, but we have a Russian naval base in Latakia in Syria on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, a bigger base than anything we've got anywhere around it. And we've saw, seen in the last few days, you know, Russian soldiers going in, taking selfies of themselves inside former American bases. Okay, And they know what the message is. And the people around them know what the message is. Deal with the Russians, not the Americans. And that's not going to help world peace because <laughs> the Russians are not really terribly interested in the kind of stable world that we've been working for the last 70 years to build. That's not what they're interested in. You've probably been reading all of this uh, news about the uh, impeachment proceedings against President Trump, and it was triggered by a CIA officer whistleblowing uh, about what uh, the president was attempting to do in the Ukraine. How do you feel as a as a former CIA operations officer to see all of this unfold? Well, I think I remember when President Clinton directed all of us, and it was very firm direction, that if you become aware of the violation of federal law, you must report it. And it was somewhat controversial with us at the time because we're not police. We're not law enforcement, okay? And we didn't feel like we should be doing law enforcement work. And we, most of us do not want to do law enforcement stuff. But, um, and, and we also felt, you know, we're the ones who get the intelligence first, okay? So if there is going to be something where some American is doing something wrong somewhere, it's likely to come to our attention first. So that's what's happened. Uh, whistleblower laws are very explicit. The, that person had no choice other than to do what they did. Um, and it's just, it's just unfortunate unfortunate in, in terms of, well, it's not unfortunate that the person reported it. It's just, uh, it's, it's going to hurt that it was somebody from the agency because this president obviously does not like the agency to begin with. Um, 
and he doesn't trust, he's made it very clear that he doesn't trust the Bureau or the agency or just about anybody else. Um, there was actually a member of the Senate the other day who said, I don't trust the FBI and the CIA. Okay. I don't know why, but that's his attitude. And, uh, and I just think it was very unfortunate, but I also understand the position that the person was in. They, f- they saw what they thought was a violation of law and they felt they had to report it. Now, you know, you've served almost four decades in the agency and you've watched U.S. foreign policy flip-flop and friends become enemies, enemies become friends, as you've kind of described in some of these examples, memos being ignored and Washington taking a short-term view of a lot of things while our adversaries often take a very long-term view. Looking back, do you think it was all worth it to taking, you know, risking your life and limb and making all of the necessary sacrifices to a normal family life? Yeah, certainly. I don't regret anything, frankly. But, you know, when the French paratroopers were living, were leaving um, Algeria, they sang an Edith Piaf song, Je n'en regret rien. I don't regret a thing. <laughs> Which, I don't mean it that way, okay? The way they meant it, because they had done some horrible things in Algeria. But no, I don't have any regrets about my career. I have regrets for the strains that it's put on my family, the strains that it put on my marriage, and eventually helped destroy my marriage. It just, you know, it certainly probably affected my kids negatively in some ways, although they seem to have been enriched by the experience of having grown up and studied all over the world, and they have no hesitation about traveling today. Uh, one of my sons just finished working for three years as a lawyer in Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, no, I don't, I don't, I don't regret anything. And, and as far as the flip-flops in American foreign policy, I don't mind the flip-flops. What I mind is what we're getting into today, which is denying basic principles. There have always been certain basic principles underlying American foreign policy, which we've been careful to follow. Freedom of the seas, strength of alliances, things like that. And we're now in this strange world where we're denying that the alliances are even important. Uh, we're walking away from things like NATO and all of these other relationships we have around the world. And it, it, I think it's going to, it, it will create a very uncertain world. Certainly if I was in Japan or South Korea today and I was a leader, I would be thinking seriously about nuclear armaments, about rearming the country, about having a stronger military force, because I would be doubting American desire to remain steadfast on what has been you know, a clear American policy that we're not going to allow aggression to succeed. You said when you walked through the doors of the agency, you felt like you didn't quite belong, almost like an imposter syndrome. Looking back 38 years later, do you feel like you ever fit into the agency? Not really. No, I I, I carved out my niche and I worked there and I lived there and uh, and it was fine, and I, I really enjoyed it. But I always felt a little bit out of place in the sense that I always, you know, I, I, I just felt I was dealing with a lot of really brilliant people, and I'm not that brilliant. Um, and, uh, I mean, I felt I made my contribution, and I'm not ashamed of anything that I accomplished or did or anything else, but I, I always felt a little bit out of place. And it's probably a good thing because that probably keeps you, you know, I always figured somebody didn't need to come along and tell me I'm a shit bird. I could figure that out myself. <laughs> Excuse my language, but it's it's a term used to use. Uh, you know, blame yourself, 
first, okay, before anybody else gets a chance to do it. So, no, I, I always felt a little bit out of place, although I felt very comfortable working there. I felt very comfortable as a manager. I never felt like I was going to succeed to the top management levels because so much of that is political and I am politically incorrect. And, you know, I knew I was never going to succeed in the Washington arena because it's all about political correctness. Uh, and much of it is just complete hypocrisy. I, I've often noticed that the people who uh, start talking about uh, political correctness uh, and implementing political correctness frequently do so when they've gotten to the top. But I knew them when they were struggling up the greasy pole to get to the top, and they didn't care much about it then. <laughs> they care about it afterwards when they realize it will get them in a better position with Congress or whatever. So I think a lot of it is hypocrisy, frankly. And, and I don't have any problem at all with diversity or, you know, rewarding people for their, for their, for, for good work. And I don't care who they are or what their background is or anything else, their gender, or any of that stuff. I mean, to me, doing the intelligence work requires a certain type of person. And provided we get the right kind of person and the person works hard, I want to reward them. Do you have any closing thoughts on the future of the agency, given all of this friction between the White House and Congress and the agency today? Uh, the agency is America's only civilian organization dedicated to intelligence that is not part of a policy bureau. Whatever the agency reports in terms of you know, intelligence reporting has no policy implications for the agency. And by that, I mean... You know, if we find that the Soviets are building so many missile systems or whatever, then our reporting of the Russians are building, excuse me, um, at, that reporting doesn't reflect later on our budget. If you're in the Air Force, uh, you're, you, you want to inflate what the Soviets, what the Russians are doing or what the Chinese are doing or whatever, because you have a policy imperative to build your own service, to build your own weapon systems, etc. We don't have that. That's very, almost unique in the world. Uh, the only real country with a similar system is Britain, where it's totally separate from any of the any of the other parts of government. Um, and I think that that's something that America should maintain. It doesn't cost as much as people like to think it does, and I think it's very dangerous to get into a system, for example, where eighty-five and we're already there. Where 85% of the total total collection capability of the government is owned by the Pentagon. Um, I mean, they own them. They own the satellites. They own virtually all of the all of the electronic stuff and all of the all of the all of the platforms that that do all of that. And they view those agencies that do that work as combat support arms, not national intelligence structures. They term them combat support arms. Uh, I think that that's, you know, they really let us down in World War II at Pearl Harbor because of their own uh, hierarchical structures and their own infighting and everything else. And, and I'm afraid the same thing could happen in the future. I don't think that the intelligence work should be left just to the military. Bill, you're also vice president and co-founder of the Council on Intelligence Issues, which is a nonprofit organization designed to help intelligence officials what kinds of things do you do? We have two missions. One is educational, 
uh, to help the public understand what real intelligence issues are and what they're about. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast today. And the other part is to help intelligence people who get into trouble as a result of their jobs. Uh, and our motto is nobody should suffer from good faith service to government. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about somebody who engages in criminal activity or whatever, but people who are actually investigated or find themselves with huge legal bills or whatever as a result of their work for the government. And those are the people we try to help. Great. Bill, thanks so much for this fascinating conversation and for joining me today. Thank you, Chitra. William Murray is a retired senior CIA operations officer and long a legendary figure at the agency. He's founder of the Altham Group, a business intelligence and risk management consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. Murray also is vice president and co-founder of the Council on Intelligence Issues, a nonprofit established to help intelligence officials and to promote understanding of the importance of intelligence in the formulation of national policy. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.